the text for our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. And we read. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, shortcuts can be nice sometimes, right? Like you're coming back from Ikea and you're getting onto 75 and then as you get on you notice that there's this enormous traffic jam right there and so at the last possible second you avert you go off onto a side street and then it turns out to be a good move and people haven't figured it out quite yet so you like zip home and you get home and you're making dinner and people are still sitting out there on the highway hating life and you're thinking to yourself you know i'm glad i found a shortcut other times shortcuts can be a bad thing uh, if you cheat on your diet or your exercise plan, take some shortcuts, and you're not going to get the results, perhaps, that you're envisioning when you started this whole thing. Um, if you take shortcuts at work, if you cut corners at work, you might find yourself in the boss's office, and now you're wondering whether or not you're going to have a job for too much longer. Um, if you are the boss, if you are the manager, if you own the company, and you take shortcuts on your paperwork, specifically on your tax paperwork, you might find yourself in trouble with the IRS, and now you're wondering you know, whether you're going to have a company for too much longer. So the right kind of shortcut can be a lifesaver. The wrong kind of shortcut could be a huge mistake. So today, we are continuing our Lent sermon series called Crushed, where we look at Jesus our Savior crushing all of our biggest enemies. And today, the enemy that he's crushing is the enemy of sinful shortcuts. So what exactly is a sinful shortcut? For the purposes of our sermon today, I would simply say it like this. A sinful shortcut is when God wants us to do the right thing, but we're being tempted to do the easy thing. So I'll give you one example. Let's say that there is a man whose marriage is struggling. It's tough. There's been problems. The communication's not great. Now, what would be the right thing that God wants him to do? Right? Having committed to this marriage, that he would work on it and put in the time and put in the effort and fix the relationship and try to build that marriage on the unconditional love of Jesus. That would be the right thing to do, but it is a lot of work. And the easier thing to do would be just slide, let the communication get worse, take care of his own needs, neglect the relationship, and then maybe over time start to look for things outside the relationship that should have been coming from the relationship. It's flirting with a neighbor, it's looking at internet pornography, you can think of many different routes, but it's the easy way. It's just sliding the direction that it's going instead of the right way, 
and standing up and going the way he should. Does that make sense? He took a shortcut. And like that's just one specific example, but as you think about it, I think every sin involves shortcuts. Every sin, in one way or another, involves taking the easy way instead of the right way. Like, for example, it's much easier to give in to addiction than it is to fight it. It's much easier to go along with peer pressure than it is to resist it. Um, it's much easier to jump to the worst conclusion about somebody and assume that they're doing something terrible than it is to give them the benefit of the doubt. When someone hurts you, it's much easier to hurt them back than it is to forgive them. So I think you see this pattern in every sin, and the more closely we examine our lives, the more we realize that our lives are full of these kinds of, of sinful shortcuts. So what does this teach us about ourselves? Well, unfortunately, it teaches us that even though we all like to think of ourselves as mostly good people, that we're kind and selfless, and we're, we're one of the good ones, when we think of this idea of shortcuts, we start to realize we all are more selfish than we think that we are. In fact, our sinful nature turns each one of us into the spiritual center of our universe where everything revolves around us. And needless to say, that does not bode super well for our relationships with each other. It also does not bode well at all for our relationship with God. Because where does God want us to be? Well, the picture that I was getting to from studying our text this week is you know, the picture of a race, and not a marathon, but a sprint like a 200, a 400, one of those races where you've got to stay in your lane. And if you're running like the 200 and you step out of your lane even once, what happens to you? You're disqualified. You didn't stay in your lane. One misstep and it's ruined. So in the same way, what does God tell human beings? The way he created us in his image is a way where he says, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy and, and be perfect. And so he gives us his law and says, whoever stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Whoever steps out of their lane, takes one shortcut, gets disqualified. And then we look at our life, and there are many, many shortcuts, and it happens every single day. But then into this world of sin and shortcuts and disqualifications, into this world steps Jesus. And he laces on his shoes, and he runs in our place, and he stays in his lane. And it is amazing to watch. Uh, last week we saw this. Do you remember the text last week where we talked about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? Um, he's facing the devil, and he's facing some of these recognizable temptations in our spot. And he just does it all perfectly without ever taking a shortcut. Today, in our text, we see the devil still tempting Jesus. And once again, he's tempted in every way just like we are, but he doesn't fail even one time. So our sermon text uh, from Luke 13, this comes from a time in Jesus' ministry when he's very, very popular. So thousands of people are now coming to hear him preach. And the news of his miracles is spreading throughout the land. And Jesus then does this one really awesome miracle where he feeds an entire crowd of thousands from one kid's lunchbox. You know, some for you, some for you, some for you, some for you. And the crowd is so excited that by the end of this day, they are literally ready to crown him king by force. And if you think about it, like how good would it have felt for Jesus to just let them do it? 
to leverage all his popularity and influence and set up an earthly kingdom. Maybe he could leverage his divine power as God and throw off the occupying Roman forces and give the Jews their land back. And finally build the type of earthly, you know, spiritual empire that all of the people seemed to want. It's interesting, as you read through the Gospels, it seems like this is a temptation that Jesus faced, like, all of the time. Um, all the people wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom. And his own disciples wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom. And certainly, Satan wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom. In fact, if you remember last week, we heard about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember one of those temptations was where the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor and said, all of this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And this is the same temptation. It's the temptation to set aside his heavenly mission in favor of earthly happiness. It's the temptation to set aside the right thing in favor of the easy thing. It's the temptation to take a shortcut. And over and over, Jesus is being tempted to take this particular shortcut, to leave behind his spiritual mission, even for just a little bit, and to set up for happiness in this world. So why did the devil, do you think, why do you think he kept coming at Jesus with this temptation over and over again to set up an earthly kingdom? Well, you consider what Jesus needs to do for us to be saved. We talk about that idea of running on a track, and the only way to heaven is perfection. And that is the only way to heaven. And so we can't do it. And we need a perfect Savior whose perfection will be ours and whose righteousness will cover us. But if Jesus, at one point along the mission, you know, steps out of his lane, if Jesus, even for a little bit, sets up shop for earthly happiness, and then later he says, no, no, I'm back in on my mission, he's got a mark on his record. He, he's no longer perfect. Pretty good, but not perfect. And that means the righteousness that we have from our Savior is pretty good, not perfect. That means someday when we die and we stand before God and he's only letting perfection into heaven, we are pretty good but not perfect. If Jesus steps out of his lane one time, we're doomed. So this is a ton of pressure on Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like if he makes one false step, it's disaster for us. And yet Jesus, superhero son of God that he is, he thrives on the pressure. And you can see that in our chapter here. As the devil packages this temptation in a very tricky way in Luke 13, Jesus just handles it perfectly. So here's the situation. It says, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus. And they said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Um, Jesus, we've got your back. It's dangerous here. You probably need to move. I'm saying that kind of sarcastically because we know the Pharisees, right? That these are Jesus' enemies, they're probably not trying to defend him. Um, what they're probably trying to do is scare Jesus and get him to leave the region of Perea where he is, where he's so popular, and get him to, you know, turn tail and go hide back in that backwoods village of Nazareth that he came from. Um, and Jesus knows that he knows what they're doing. But there is an element of truth in what they're saying. King Herod is against Jesus. This is probably the grandson, I believe, of the Herod that tried to kill him when he was a baby. Uh, King Herod doesn't like his popularity. A lot of people don't like his popularity. And it's a true point that if Jesus continues on the path that he's on, it is not going to be long before he finds himself nailed to a cross. And so what Satan is doing 
through the Pharisees is telling Jesus, there's still time to switch paths. There's still time to opt out. Jesus, you can still take an off-ramp. But Jesus refuses to do it. And so he replies to the Pharisees, go tell that fox, King Herod, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So what is Jesus saying? Well, first, he keeps going, you know, this day, tomorrow, and the third day. He's got this three-day frame in mind, and we know what he's going to do after he dies on the cross three days later. He's going to rise from the dead. So Jesus is already prophesying this three days. But more to the point, for here and now, he says no prophet can die outside Jerusalem, which is such an ironic statement because Jerusalem is the religious capital of Israel. And yet this is where the prophets come to die. And Jesus knows the history. He knows that the three biggest Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all of them got killed by their own people because their own people did not like the message that they were bringing from God. And Jesus knows that he's going to get killed by his own people. It's not going to be some rebels that come and invade and capture the Jewish Messiah and take him away and kill him. It's going to be the Jewish leaders handing him over to be crucified. And Jesus has specifically predicted that already, where he has said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the Jewish elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he's going to be killed, and then on the third day raised to life. Like many prophets before him, Jesus will be killed by his own people. He knows what's coming. And yet, his love for human beings is so great that he just cannot bring himself to take a shortcut. He looks at the city of Jerusalem, he looks at the people of Israel, and he longs to gather them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children as that hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. So Jesus knows everything that's coming. He knows where his path is leading, and yet he loves human beings, even those who oppose him so much that he will not deviate from his mission. So, not if I had a blank slide there, I guess I don't. What do we learn? Uh, what do we learn from all of this? As we see Jesus steering around this sinful shortcut, we really get like a view into his heart, and we see two things about our Savior. Here's the first one. It's that Jesus has ironclad determination. There's kind of a cool thing about this text. Um, normally you think of humble Jesus walking along, going to die, but this is like action Jesus that is not changing his mind. He will not be moved. Uh, through Isaiah, he said he had set his face like flint. Um, and then according to Jesus himself, he says, on the third day, I will reach my goal. No shortcuts. Um, so the ironclad determination, and then at the same time, Jesus also has a heart of tender compassion for everybody in the world, even especially those who have rejected him so far. Like he's looking at the Jewish leaders and saying, I've longed to gather you in Jerusalem, but you're just not willing. And then later when Jesus is hanging from the cross, he'll be looking at the Romans who are crucifying him, and to them, for them, he's praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Compassion for everybody, even his enemies. Ironclad determination, a heart of tender compassion. 
we said this in the kids lesson, right? That these aren't two things that necessarily go together for people. So think about this. Maybe you know somebody, maybe you know someone who has ironclad determination. They are highly motivated, highly competitive, a super achiever. Maybe you're a person like that. But if you are, you know that there's a flip side. You know that you have to be careful in your aggressive push to accomplish your goals. You have to be careful to think of how other people are feeling and how this is affecting others so that you don't steamroll everybody else right, uh, in your determination to go reach your goal. By the same token, maybe you know somebody who's the opposite. Maybe you know somebody who is full of compassion, uh, has a heart for others, someone who feels other people's emotions so deeply. Maybe you know somebody who cannot stand conflict and when people are upset and they're like the ultimate listener, the ultimate connector. These are great features to have, but if you are that person, you also might have to watch yourself sometimes and make sure that you're standing up for yourself when you need to, that you're sticking by your principles when you need to, that you're not getting bullied and pushed around and letting others take advantage of you. So ironclad determination and like tender-hearted compassion I think we almost would view these as opposites a lot of the times, that these are almost different personality types. But in Jesus, it all comes together perfectly. When it comes to rescuing us from sin and accomplishing our salvation, Jesus is as determined as it gets. He is going for the cross. Nothing can stop him. Sin, death, hell, Satan, get out of the way. Jesus is coming through. But then when it comes to dealing with us, and our weaknesses, and our sins, and the many times we've fallen, and the many shortcuts that we have taken, when it comes to dealing with us, Jesus is as compassionate as it, get, as it gets. He says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I am not going to snuff out. I will protect you. I will hold you. So it's, you know, perfect determination and perfect compassion joined together in our perfect Savior. Now, how does that impact us? Well, as we see Jesus living his life of perfect determination and perfect compassion, steering around all the shortcuts, staying on his mission, it motivates us to do the same thing with our lives as we can, as God leads us, as God helps us. And as we try to live like Jesus and steer around our sinful shortcuts, it impacts the people around us far more deeply than we think. So this is like the last big point for this morning. I know it's Daylight Savings Day. Like, okay, this is the last big point. I want you to just think about this deeply for a second. Um, in every human society, there is an assumption that we function on. And the assumption is this. People are going to do what's best for them. Everybody knows this. This is just how people act. People will choose the path that is the least pain and the least resistance. They will choose the path that is the most fun and enjoyable for them. People will do what benefits them. And so people take this into account when they're planning advertising and marketing and businesses. People take this into account uh, in politics. A sports team would take this into account with their fan base. You know that people are going to choose what's best for them. And so we plan our society accordingly. This is how it normally works in every society. People do what's best for them. So when a person does something that is clearly worse for them, but it's better for someone else, it's very shocking. It really sticks out. Now, as a kid, I remember seeing this 
uh, two particular times. So the first one was at Christmas time and we're, we're picking out Christmas trees. So here was, here's the story and I'll keep it short, but my brothers and I were going Christmas tree cutting with my dad. It's like a sons and dad thing. So we went through the cut your own lot and it was pretty picked over and we found kind of the last good Christmas tree that was you know tall and straight that was left. So he went to the lot manager and said, we wanna cut down this tree. So he got the saw and he came with us back to the tree. And meanwhile, another couple had walked up to the tree and they asked, you know, can we buy this one? And the lot manager said, you know, sorry, it's taken. And he starts cutting it down for us. And then my dad, without skipping a beat, just goes, well, you guys can have it. Um, and they're like, no, no, it's okay. He's like, no, seriously, we'll pick a different tree, it's fine. So we just picked a different tree. And th this couple took like the perfect nice tree and we went and got a clearly inferior tree and brought that one home. Um, so like, what made this a story is the reaction of the lot manager. Because after this happened, the other couple left, and I just distinctly remember this as a kid. We were leaving, and the manager came up to my dad, and he was like, man, that was really cool. You didn't have to do that. No, you didn't, you didn't have to do that. Man, that was really, really cool. Like, that was really, he just couldn't stop saying it. And I was like, why is this guy having this reaction? It, it impacted him so deeply that my dad just gave something away that would have been ours. Um, later, I saw my dad do the exact same thing in a video store. So all of these stories seem to come from Christmas for whatever reason, but this is also Christmas season. And maybe it was like the next year, I think I was five or six, my dad had been talking up this legendary movie called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And you know, none of us had seen it. So we went to the video store to finally get it. It was Friday night, it was dad's night off. We've been talking about this movie. My dad is like amping it up for us, how cool it is. So we went, and this is before streaming, when to rent a video, you had to actually be holding it in your hands to get one, and there's only one left. So we got the last Grinch video, brought it up to the register, start checking out, another family comes in, they say to the manager, hey, uh, can we rent the Grinch? And he's like, sorry, this is the last one. And again, my dad instinctively just goes, oh, you guys can have it, it's fine. No, no, we'll just watch a different movie. So we gave them the movie that we had been planning all day to watch, and we just watched a different one. And as kids, we're like, oh, I guess this is what we do, okay. And the other couple took the movie and left. But for the manager of the store, it was the same thing. He, that he couldn't let it go. And he kept saying to my dad, man, that was really cool. Like, that was, why did you do that? You didn't have to do that. Dude, why did, like, it almost bothered him. He, he couldn't understand it. And then, that's the end of the story. So, like, I wish that there was this next chapter where then he fell to his knees in the video store and my dad baptized him and he, like, this isn't what happened. Um, it, was, it was just a little thing. Um, but. The reason why I share this story is because it is so shocking to people. If you do something that is instinctively not great for you, but better for someone else, it just blows people's minds because the world doesn't work that way. So what does this look like now for you and your life and your temptations and your sinful shortcuts? You know, maybe it is saying no to your selfishness and, and working on a relationship like God wants you to do. Maybe it's saying no to peer pressure and leaving a party because you don't like some of the things that are going on there. Maybe it's saying no to that extra hour of sleep and coming to church on daylight savings morning. Uh, maybe it's saying no to your sexual desires and saving yourself for marriage like you're supposed to. I mean, you could just list so many different things, but it looks different for all of us. We have different temptations, different opportunities. We're never gonna do it perfectly. But as we look at our life and have chances to do this every day, we don't wanna miss 
that when we do take the right road instead of the easy road, it impacts people way more than we realize. And maybe there are other chapters to the story that we don't get to see. Like the video store manager one day does pick up a Bible or does come to a church or does learn what God did for him in Jesus and becomes part of God's family and is with us in heaven someday. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what's happening from the seeds that are planted. But what is clear is that as Jesus lived this life of avoiding shortcuts and doing the right thing, not only did he rescue us, but he also co-opts us into this mission of impacting our world with our words and also with our actions in probably deeper ways than we'll ever realize until we get to heaven and see who all is there. What an amazing God we have. Not only does he run the race, but he pulls us in and carries us to the finish line as well. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.